welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United States, Chile, and a see you in hell from Italy, but not from World War II. Starting out this week, I'm talking about the news that the Chilean presidential candidate, Jose Antonio Cast, uh, his father was actually a member of the Nazi party. Now, I've mentioned Cast previously on the podcast, and if you've been following Chilean news or international news, you might have heard of him and his candidacy for president in Chile. Uh, Cast's ancestry, uh, specifically the German side of his ancestry from his father, is well known, and he has been publicly open about the fact that his father served in the German military, specifically he was in the Wehrmacht, uh, as in the German army. However, Cast has always maintained that his father was a conscript and that he joined the army, you know, as a teenager, as a young man, to serve for his country in a war, you know, essentially claiming that he was just following orders. However, uh, we now have confirmation, and this is coming from The Guardian, that uh, Michael Cast, uh, a Michael Cast, joined the Nazi party in September 1942 from the very same place that the Michael Cast, who is Jose Antonio Cast's father, is from. Now, these party documents don't contain images of people. They just contain birthplaces and times of joining. So this doesn't prove, like, in a completely definitive way that it is that Michael Cast. However, it is extremely likely that this is indeed the Michael Cast who is Jose Antonio Cast's father. Uh, this is causing a little bit of a PR problem for Cast, specifically because, you know, if your father was a member of the Nazi party, presumably you would know. Uh, it's extremely likely, and in, you know, in cases like these in which a person has a secret Nazi past, usually people in their actual personal circle do know. Uh, so if he was indeed lying about this, like, for example, if other documentation can be found regarding Cast's party membership, uh, that would be super interesting, and it would expose him as having lied about that. That's especially interesting given that Cast is going to face his opponent, uh, Boric, in the second round of the Chilean presidential election this weekend on the 19th. Uh, the polls are extremely close with a small Boric lead, uh, so uh, good luck to those of you voting against Cast in Chile. Turning to the United States, uh, there's news that Kyle Rittenhouse will be speaking at a TPUSA event again this weekend, uh, December 18th to the 21st. And now, for those of you who've forgotten, TPUSA is Turning Point USA, um, which is a far-right propaganda org focused on the youth in the United States. Uh, they have a lot of outreach on college campuses in particular. Uh, and so it's no real surprise that Rittenhouse would be speaking at such an event. He is a literal poster child uh, for how they think the leadership of the United States should look. Uh, that is, young white men, and specifically young white men who have engaged in political violence in the interests of the right wing. If you've ever seen an image of a TPUSA conference, uh, you would not be surprised. Uh, it looks like a like a Model UN conference, honestly, you know, like a bunch of bunch of young dudes wearing suits that don't particularly fit. Uh, this will presumably only be the beginning of Kyle Rittenhouse's formal political career. Uh, unfortunately, it is very likely that this is not the last you will hear of this particular right-wing potential martyr, now hero. 
Moving on to more information about the attempted coup last year. Jesus, it's, all, it's almost been a, a whole year. In any case, the news is that Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former chief of staff and the chief of staff during the coup itself, has in fact given some documents and information to the January 6th Select Committee. And that's uh, the next two things that I'm going to be talking about on this episode pertain to this. One of them is that the committee actually got a, a PowerPoint presentation uh, that was a roadmap to how to complete the coup, uh, which means that the uh, that there's, there's a famous memo produced by people in the Justice Department and by Trump's legal team uh, about how they might potentially legally justify the coup. Uh, but the existence of this PowerPoint, which is a PowerPoint presentation of the same legal brief, uh, this means that they were either that they did or that they were planning on showing this plan to like other people who weren't going to read the memo, but who were like involved in the planning, you know, just like in a normal meeting type way, like like in the bureaucracy and in, in the Trump administration. This means that it was circulating within the White House. And what that means is that people who are working there at the time can't legitimately claim to have known nothing about the plans for the attempted coup because apparently these plans were literally being disseminated or were just about to be disseminated throughout the Trump administration. Uh, additional documents released from the Meadows's, you know, office and his staff members uh, show that in an email he sent on January 5th, um, he said that the National Guard would be used to protect Trump loyalists during the coup and presumably immediately after. Uh, the wording is that the National Guard would be on the ground to protect Trump people. Uh, what this means is that either Meadows was trying to imply that the National Guard was working with the Trump administration preparing for the coup, or at least that somebody in the National Guard was. He was either trying to imply that, or it was indeed the case. And he had contacts in the National Guard apparatus that were supportive of the coup or were at least willing to collude and collaborate with it and to protect the people on the ground, the people who were actually invading the Capitol at the time from potential reprisal. Uh, that's extremely disturbing because it's, it's, again, we're inching closer to smoking guns about emails or contacts or text messages or phone calls or whatever uh, that are just orders from the political apparatus of the Trump administration to allow the coup to happen on the part of the security apparatus of the United States. Speaking further of the coup, we have news from Rolling Stone that uh, Fox News anchors were actually attempting to stop the coup as it was happening, even as they were reporting on it, even as they were legitimizing it on air. These are texts released uh, by Fox News correspondents uh, in this Meadows investigation specifically. Uh, these Fox News correspondents sent texts to Meadows asking him to get the president uh, to stop the coup as was happening. Uh, they're, they're literally texting him saying, like, get those people out of that building. You're ruining what we've all worked for. Uh, they could see that the coup was not going to succeed, at least not in, you know, in the like true sense and that it would like stop Biden from being the president. And they could see as instrumentalists themselves, you know, like it, it, it's looking increasingly like a lot of those people don't really believe in the right wing talking points that they're saying their media personality is doing a job. And so instead, this is them saying, like, don't ruin this for us. Like, like, don't make our position untenable. 
Uh, don't make us look too stupid such that we can't continue to have this job talking about these things on television. Uh, people sending these texts include Sean Hannity and uh, Brian Kilmeade, who is the host of Fox and Friends, a very prominent news, well, it's sort of like a news entertainment type show on Fox News that was once Trump's favorite show uh, until he soured on it a little bit and turned toward One American News, which is an even more right-wing nationalist news source. All of this means that the people on the right wing, uh, from the Trump administration to the propaganda wing of the right wing, that is, you know, Fox News and other news outlets, knew that this was a coup, they could see it as it was happening, and that some of the people who saw this uh, believed in the coup and really thought that it could work. Apparently, Mark Meadows was one of those people, at least at the time. And that other people, uh, those who have, you know, been around and been in positions of power and influence much longer on the right wing, for example, Sean Hannity, were worried that the coup would fail and that it would set the right wing back in the United States. Unfortunately for all of us, that setback has not yet come. Uh, it looks very much like the Republicans will be able to take back the House and possibly go further in many state houses and state governments in 2022, and who knows what's coming in 2024. Uh, it looks as if they're just going to get away with this coup, and that if they take the House in 2022, there will be no further investigation, there will be no conclusion to the January 6th investigation, and we'll have to wait for the history books. Uh, to determine exactly what it is that happened. Turning to more explicitly fascist news in the United States, this is an interesting one. An organization called Black Hammer has entered into a coalition with the Proud Boys. Uh, Black Hammer is a sort of crypto-fascist black nationalist organization, uh, whereas the Proud Boys is a generically nationalist organization in the United States, which, as such, by default, is something of a white nationalist organization. Uh, however, for the last several years, its leadership has actually been filled with men of color. However, again, uh, those particular leaders have been in jail or in other criminal proceedings for essentially the entirety of the last year, since December of last year, because of their involvement in right-wing paramilitary activity in D.C. leading up to and on the day of January 6th. Uh, this alliance between Black Hammer and the Proud Boys was apparently brokered by uh, Gavin McGinnis, a white man who is the founder of the Proud Boys, who uh, at least claims to have distanced himself from the group several years ago. But apparently that's just kind of not true, which is, you know, not really coming as a surprise to anybody who's been paying uh, particular attention to right-wing politics or right-wing organizations in the United States. Uh, McGinnis has clearly had his you know, his hand in a lot of this world for a long time. And, you know, it's not exactly like it's over. Uh, this unity uh, between these two organizations uh, is specifically to stop the left. Uh, it's to stop the power of the organized left. That is their word specifically. Uh, they want to end vaccine mandates. Uh, you know, they disagree with the power of the Biden administration. This is an extremely interesting development because it indicates the bewildering variety of fascisms and nationalisms that exist in the world. Uh, many people in the United States are under the impression that nationalism or fascism is exclusively a phenomenon of white people or of people of European descent. Uh, this is just not true. Uh, arguably the largest fascist organization and the most successful one in the world is in India. It is the parent group 
of the uh, BJP, the ruling party of India currently. Uh, and there were fascist movements throughout the world of many varieties and involving many different people. The fact that fascist organizations tend to be hyper-nationalists or potentially arguably must be hyper-nationalist uh, does not mean that they can't be nationalistic about a racial or ethnic group that is non-white. Uh, this, uh, this alliance maybe might call attention to that. Finally, I'm going to close out this episode, as I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm going to talk about Lucio Gelli, an Italian far-right figure and political consultant. Uh, he was born in Italy in 1919 and joined Mussolini's Black Shirts, uh, that is a, you know, a far-right paramilitary organization. He served in the Spanish Civil War as a volunteer on the nationalist fascist side, and then spent years as a fascist operative and diplomat. Uh, he specifically worked with the Spanish government and also returned to Italy in 1943 to work with the Italian rump state uh, that ruled uh, northern Italy after the Allied invasion of southern Italy and the initial uh, deposing of Benito Mussolini. Uh, this rump state is the state that Mussolini returned to be the head of after he was rescued from jail. After the war, uh, Jelly became a businessman and financier, and it's here that his real influence on the Italian right wing uh, really took prominence. He joined and later became the Grand Master of an organization called Propaganda Due, uh, as in D-U-E, as in, as in the, the number two, uh, which was a secret Masonic lodge uh, that was uh, ostracized from the main organization of the Italian Masonic lodges uh, and united right-wing figures uh, in Italy and also worldwide. Uh, specifically, a lot of these right-wing figures that were in this organization were in Argentina, and it's because of the organizing efforts of Jelly, uh, who was a fugitive from the Italian government for his involvement in a failed coup attempt in Argentina during the 1970s, at which time he got a lot of prominent Argentine figures on the right wing to join this organization. He then returned to Italy to continue to be a financier and sort of like right-wing power broker. Finally, raids on the HQ of uh, Propaganda Deux in 1982 uh, released lists of members involved, uh, which involved a lot of prominent politicians, members of the security apparatus, including uh, people who were leaders in, you know, the Italian equivalent of the CIA or the FBI. Another person on this list was still just a media personality at the time, but future Prime Minister of Italy, Silvio Berlusconi. Uh, after this raid, Jelly fled to South America uh, for a time and then returned to Europe in Switzerland and was finally extradited into Italy for financial crimes and slander and, you know, a bunch of other sort of like more minor crimes that you might be able to get an organized crime person actually on trial for, you know, like the stuff you can actually get evidence for. Uh, there were some potential murder charges, but those were dropped. Uh, finally, he was convicted and sentenced to a couple decades in prison for these financial crimes, uh, but was eventually put only under house arrest. Uh, he died this week in history, December 15th, 2015, of old age. So, Lissio Jelly, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review, like, share, and subscribe on whatever it is you're listening to this on. And if you really liked it, tell a friend, family member, or comrade. And if you really, really liked it, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. All right. I will see you next week.